C.S. Lewis grew up in church, but as he moved on into adulthood, he became an atheist. He taught English literature, and a lot of the people that knew him during that time of his life didn't know that he then went on to come to Christ through the influence of his friends like Tolkien and to write Christian literature like the Chronicles of Narnia and Screwtape Letters. And a lot of the people that knew him while he was writing Christian literature didn't know that he then went on to write apologetics. And one of those books, Mere Christianity, he said, I was assuming that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some real reason for reconsidering turns up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason, but that is not so. He goes on to give the example of anesthetics. He said, you know, my reason is fully convinced that anesthetics work, that I'm not going to suffocate when they put me under, that I won't feel anything, that the doctors aren't going to start cutting on me until the anesthetics have really gone into effect. But that doesn't change the fact that once I'm laying there on that operating table and they clamp the mask to my face, I freak out. I start to develop a childish fear that I'm going to be smothered by this mask, that they're going to start cutting before it goes into effect, that it's just going to be a miserable experience. He said, basically, I completely lose my faith in anesthetics. And he goes on and says, It is not reason that is taking away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It is my imagination and emotions. The battle is between faith and reason on one side and emotion and imagination on the other. We really live in difficult times, don't we? Home prices or home values have just plummeted. Gas prices have gone sky high because of that. Food is more expensive. Everything's more expensive because it costs so much to ship things. Unemployment is up. Uh, I mean, the, the economy's a mess. The dollar has little value. Foreclosures are happening left and right. And in the midst of all that, this, this financial turmoil, the hardest thing sometimes is to actually trust God. He says that he'll take care of us, that he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. And, you know, we can look at our lives and see that in all the hardships we've faced before, he's always brought us through. Intellectually, you know, we absolutely say, yes, God is good. He takes care of his children. But like Peter, we far too often take our eyes off him and immediately begin to sink. The evidence is there. We have a reasonable faith in God that he's going to take care of us, that he'll provide for us. But emotions and imagination take over. We shift our focus from what we know is to what we are afraid could be. Matthew 6, 25 through 27. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Recent medical research has shown that as much as 60 to 90% of all illness is directly related to stress. It just wears down on your immune system. It, it breaks your bodies down. I mean, some of the sickest people I know are the ones who are constantly worrying about this, that, or the other, and it just it wrecks us. Rather than 
adding a single hour to our lives by worry. We instead add heart attacks, ulcers. We subtract years from what would have been our lives. That's why in 1 Peter 5, 7, it tells us, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. My sister Joanna works for and with a lot of other believers, and her direct boss every week sends out a devotional email. And in it, he uses hymns as the basis and then adds scripture and just sends a quick encouraging note. And I had just decided what I was going to talk about this morning. And the following morning after making the decision and starting to prepare, Joanna forwarded me her boss's email from that week. And the hymn was Leave It There. If the world from you withhold of its silver and its gold, and you have to get along with meager fare, just remember in his word how he feeds the little bird. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Hymns are just, they have such rich words and so often are directly based on scripture like this. And I just find them so encouraging. Going on to verse 28. So why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So what does it mean to seek first? I think ultimately it's really a matter of what's most important to you. What could you just absolutely not live without? If you go back a few verses to verse 21, it says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's really all a matter of perspective. If you're focusing on earthly possessions and how not to lose them in this mess of an economy, you're going to have a very hard time not freaking out as the storms come and beat on you. But by contrast, if your focus is on God's treasures, then what does it matter whether you have no earthly possessions? I mean, it's like Paul said in Philippians 4, 12 and 13, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Horatio Spafford learned that lesson through a very difficult two years of his life. First, his son died, and he and his wife were in the midst of mourning that loss when the Chicago fire came and ripped through and destroyed nearly all of his possessions. Later, they decided to move to England, and his wife and four daughters went ahead of him, sailing across the Atlantic. And in the middle of the Atlantic, an ironclad ship crashed into their vessel, killed over 200 people, and killed all four of his daughters. And his wife got to England and sent a message that she was the only one that survived. And he followed shortly thereafter. And mid-Atlantic, he wrote, Peace Like a River, or It Is Well. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Verse 34, 
Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know why we don't have to worry about tomorrow? Because God already has it taken care of. It's not going to catch him off guard or sleeping on the job. He already knows everything that has happened, everything that is happening, and everything that will happen. Jeremiah 29.11 is continually quoted, but I wanted to give a little background to that first. The Israelites, because of sin and because of unbelief, were sent into exile. And they, of course, complained about their punishment. They weren't too thrilled about being captives in a foreign land. And some false prophets came, and they told the people exactly what they wanted to hear. They said, oh, you know, God's spoken to us, and you're going to get to go back soon. You're not going to be trapped here much longer. And God responded through Jeremiah and said, nope, that's just not the case. You need to settle down. You need to marry off your kids. And you need to get used to where you're at because you're not going anywhere for the next 70 years. And immediately after that, he goes on and says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God doesn't promise that our lives are going to consist of merrily skipping down the yellow brick road, that we won't have any hardships, that everything will be great. But he does promise, in the middle of the hardships, that he knows what he's doing, that he does have a plan, and that it is for our good. So what does this mean to us? Well, in that same chapter of Mere Christianity, Lewis said, We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. So how do we feed that? Well, if we look to the early church as our example, in Acts 2.42, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So we have really three key focuses that we can use to keep our mind on Christ and on what he's done for us and know that God will provide. And the first is scripture. In Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 21, it says, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give to your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. And if you look through this passage, it's, the scripture is just inundated in the people's lives. It's when they rise, when they sit, you know, when they go about their days, when they're walking, when they're at home, everything. It, it's just so intertwined into every part of their lives. In Psalms 119.11, it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And when Satan tempted Christ in the desert, every answer that our Lord had was scripture. I mean, it, it is the absolute truth to which we can cling in the midst of life's storms. In Matthew 7, the house that was built upon the rock that was able to withstand the storms was the individual who not only hears, but obeys God's word. Like Lewis said, 
we have to be continually reminded of what we believe. And what better way to do that than by just filling our lives with Scripture daily and starting the day out focusing on God's Word. The second key focus is our relationships with other believers. This is not just some lone wolf religion, like the stereotypical American hero who goes out on his own and he conquers all the bad guys and he does everything himself and doesn't need help. I mean, we are all members of one body and we are called to bear one another's burdens. In Ecclesiastes 4.12, it says, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The breaking of bread that's mentioned here in, in Acts isn't communion. He's talking about sharing meals together. The fellowship that happens when you're sitting at one another's houses and just eating together. I mean, a couple weeks ago, Sarah and I had her godfather, George, and his wife, Diane, over for dinner. And Diane commented on what an incredible act of love it is to invite someone into your home and prepare a meal for them and just share it with them. It's just so true. It's such a great way to get to know one another. Um, if you look to Solomon, he's a great example on how wisdom alone won't keep you safe. It won't keep you on the right path. I mean, he, God said, what do you want? He said, wisdom. But then you go later in his life, and he surrounded himself with a lot of unbelieving wives and concubines, and they were married in politically, and you look at his life, and he turned away from the Lord, and he sought other idols. Uh, you know, the old adage that bad company corrupts good morals. Well, the converse is absolutely true. That good company is going to build up and strengthen good morals. And the third key focus is prayer. And Kurt covered this topic outstandingly a couple of weeks ago. And uh, you can get the CD from Rick in the back or you know, go online for the PowerPoint. Um, but you know, he talks about how Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. I mean, how can we have a relationship with God if we don't even talk to him? Chris Lundegaard, in his book, The Enemy Within, said the person who calls himself a Christian, who says he loves God, yet does not seek his company and delight in it, can't be a true lover of God. If we look to Christ as our example, it says in Luke 5.16 that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I mean, throughout his life, every time he came up against some major decision or major circumstance in his life, Scripture records that he went off by himself and he sought God and he prayed. Let's follow an example now and pray. Lord, I thank you that when we ask for bread, you won't give us a stone. I thank you that you formed us in our mother's wombs and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I thank you that you work all things for the good of your children. Lord, teach us to ever keep you in the forefront of our minds and to trust in your provision. 